From socialservice.sg, I am Tsingyao. What started as a published collection of stories to coincide with Singapore's National Day has now evolved into the Birthday Collective, a not-for-profit that creates and hosts space for conversations that matter to the country. With its editor, Cherie Singh, we discussed the collective's initiatives beyond the essay writing crowd, the value of giving conversational seats to children and centering their voices, and the importance of meeting communities and individuals where they are. We conclude on what she means by the uncommon ground and the collective's plans for the future. Cherie, Chief Operations Officer at a local fintech company and a mother of three. Sherry, thank you for joining us. Could you tell us more about yourself and the Birthday Collective? You know, most people, I think, are fairly familiar with the, the Birthday Book, you know, which is the annual publication of writings in response to a common question or national, of national significance. So from what I understand, the Collective has gone beyond that and has had more initiatives beyond um, just the book. So tell us a bit more about what the Collective has been up to. Hi, thanks for having me. By day, I run a a fintech where I do operations there. And by night, this is when all of us work in the birthday collective usually because we are entirely volunteer staff. People always assume that we have paid staff, but we don't. And so we're we're pretty much a not-for-profit and we're really in the business of creating and holding space for conversations that matter. When we first started in 2016, I think it was really in response to the sudden drop in interest in talking about Singapore. The year before 2015, uh, SG50 was a big year for conversation, sort of interest about, you know, where, we're, where, where we are, how far we've come, where we're going. And then suddenly, you know, almost like, you know, you flip a page and then suddenly everyone's like back to their own daily grind. And we, we felt like it was a waste of momentum and you don't waste momentum, right? So we created the project really for us to continue this space because we knew that if people spoke very divisively, like if you're very pro-government or very anti-government or have very extreme views, it was very easy to have airtime. But there's actually a very, very big majority, this moderate majority that was, you know, constructive, critical, but also creative in, in what they're talking about that really doesn't always get heard. And we wanted to capture this voice. And we do this because we want to build what we call the brain, heart, and hand trust for Singapore. Uh, the brain trust is really not just capturing knowledge because there are a lot of archives and knowledge bases around. We're very good at that here. But we wanted to really capture understanding um, the idea of what can we do with the knowledge and what does it actually mean? Hence the conversations of experience and stories. And then when you do that with connecting to people, you build what we call the heart trust because we don't just want people to feel bad or like, oh, it's so poor thing. That's the kind of response that we usually get. Um, but we want people to actually start to feel and relate to people because that's important to us. So the heart trust. And that when you have these two, it allows you to build what we call the hand trust. Um, you know, in schools back then, you would have like, we do community work. It's always very doing, right? They tell us we do. But the hand trust really talks about advocacy, reaching out. And, you know, when you say advocacy, we don't mean like, oh, let's go and do demonstrations and pull play cards out there. But it's really about perhaps as simple as being able to build a more inclusive tomorrow for people who are neurodivergent from us or people with disabilities, thinking about all these things, you know, that, that matters to us. And we do this, of course, the book, that's really um, our core. We have two books, the senior book for adults and junior book for kids. But also we do this in sectors that we feel are not what we call the essay writing crowd. Because the essay writing crowds generally are kind of, you know, they're one type. 
Uh, so we have a video competition we have with ITE. They do storytelling and they give their message by videos. Um, last year, we partnered in Minecraft server. So we got gamers because they don't write essays for us. So these gamers built Minecraft walls. Um, the one that won was this elaborate beautiful one. And the discussion topic was really seeing our schools clearly because seeing clearly is the theme that we're working on this year. And then in the pockets of time in between, we have seminars, panels, conferences, but unconferences as well. Um, and we're brewing a fellowship. So that's exciting for us. And I kind of like your reference to the essay writing crowd because you talked about the video interview-based initiatives that you have, which feels like an important move away from the written form or format because I fashion, I think I'm of the essay writing crowd, which has its limitations because accessibility issues, um, it's not the form of communication to which most people are comfortable with. So, And we had a chat before this episode and your emphasis was on, I quote, different ways and mediums to have conversations. So tell us a bit more about the motivation behind moving away from the essay writing crowd, so to speak? It was, um, it was an interesting question that was posed to me um, back when I joined the Birthday Collective. They were already, I think the books were already underway. The first few books, senior books were already underway. And the first question that was asked to me was, um, what's your dream list? Like if you could reach out to a group that wasn't already captured, who would, what would you do? And I said, oh, because at that time I was one of, I was the only mother actually at that point in time. There was two other dads, but I was the only mom. And I said, I would love for kids to have a seat at this table. And so that became my baby. My very first baby for the birthday collective was to, to birth the junior book. And I remained um, very passionate about it for the next three years. I've just handed the reins over because I feel like we like to talk down to kids or talk about kids, right? But we don't give them a seat at the table. And actually, if you really look at the junior book, um, and that's why we're really proud of all our junior contributors. They write very deep things. They write about death. They write about you know pain. They write about suffering. They write about fitting in in this world because maybe they're a little bit different. They write about the struggles they have with friendships, which are very perennial and is very real even in adults. They write about being a child of um, divorce and what it means and how actually it's not really always that bad as people people think. Um, we even had um, a piece that was picked up by Mothership and it's actually one of their highest waiting pieces and it is, it is for us, um, written by a child of a helper. And she writes about what it means to have her mother um, be a helper in Singapore and what it means. Um, so I think when you start looking at the stories that we get and the perspectives that we get from the children, we, if you, if you look, that, look, as that, look at that as kind of an indication of the other stories that we're missing out. To me, it becomes very important because it's actually very easy to get the essay writing crowd because these guys are out there, you know, for a lot of us, even probably people who listen to this podcast, that's maybe the crowd that they, they know well. But it is, I think, our job in trying to, to look at the conversations that matter to start finding ways to reach out to, to people who may not naturally fall in our sphere. So I think for each book, we try and be as diverse and as inclusive. It's not always easy. Sometimes it's just reach. Um, and so like this year's book, we have some interview formats because not everyone writes, wants to write an essay or that's their best foot forward. And that's okay. I mean, as editors, although the form factor is still a book, that's my job, right? To, to make, make your story come to life and to put it together. The story of the young child whose mother worked as a helper is published in local news site Mothership titled, My Mom Works as a Housekeeper in Singapore. Here's what I learned from following her to work. I think I've changed after following my mom as I've become more mature. The 16-year-old Yu Xiaotian wrote, She has taught me that in order to overcome hardships, you need to change your mindset and be positive. When you do that, you will not think that life is so hard and you will overcome it eventually. 
I mean, the format is one thing, but something that you mentioned, which I um, kind of like, which is like who has a seat at the table, right? So, you know, we want to have these forms of critical, creative, constructive conversations. But, you know, in that, in that sense, who has a seat at the table matters because we want to hear from different sets of voices as well. So I guess from that point of view or from that um, perspective, from the perspective of the birthday collective, who are these individuals you're trying to reach out to? So who would you like to reach and how do you think we can better reach them, so to speak? You know, that's a really good question. And I think we ask ourselves this question every time we have a check-in, which is, which sector do we not get? So for example, I'll tell you an example of how we got the Minecraft idea. Someone in our vicinity says, you know, actually, I I would love to have, you know, this is gamers, but they will never write for you. And I'm like, oh, okay, really? That's great. Because the moment you can tell me that they are interested in having a conversation, but they, they just don't like my form factor. To me, it's like, great. That's where, you know, we kick in and we say, how can we meet them where they are? Right. So one of the, the things I would love to do is to find people who are very conversant in dialect. And I, I mean, I, I speak Hokkien and Teochew. So I, for me, it, it allows me then to speak to older people who are old. I mean, like my, my grandmother, whom we, we, we have a very, very small window to capture that story now. Um, but also fewer and fewer of us are conversant in the dialect in which they would be comfortable in, in recording these stories. And I think that's something that we that weighs on us in terms of the time urgency. And it's not just in, in like, for, the, for me, like as a Chinese, where we have Hokkien, Teochew, Cantonese, right? But in all the other races too, and finding these people, whether it's, you know, it's, it's a version of Hindi or that, that we find ways to capture important and critical stories that we might lose in the next 20 years because we, will, we don't have natural into the form factor. So I think we always are looking like there is a Gurkha that we are hoping to speak to and he's slated for next year's book. And, and it's going to be a format that fits, fits, fits him, you know? And I think we get a bit more flexible too. Um, we had our first music piece this year. Um, so it's recorded, pre-recorded, you know, we put a QR code. So I think we're starting to explore. We're not all, I don't say, I wouldn't say we're entirely inclusive. Last year for Seeing Philly, I very much wanted a Braille piece that didn't happen because time and, and just, just knowing how to get things done. We didn't think it would take as long but it, 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 it did. Um, so I think it's something that we, we still look at to try and include. So that's why we have a big push now for an audio, for the audio book to come out because at the very least, you know, the blind community is, is something, someone that we can reach out to. So I think we're learning. If anyone listens to this podcast and you have new ideas and new areas of people that you feel, you know, please, you know, look for us. So one thing you said, which I really like, which is how do we meet them where they are? Because that refers not just to the form and the format and the location, but really developing, I think, some degree of empathy to understand where individuals are coming from and where they're located. And um, this refers not just to geographically or physically where they are, but also um, their, their positionality, their lived experiences and lived narratives as well. I mentioned it and I highlight that because, you know, during our chat, as I referenced just now, we kind of converged on an agreement that we seem to have difficulty having meaningful conversations, right? In terms of creating safe spaces and focusing on what you term as the uncommon ground. So I guess to start that question, I want to first ask you how you diagnose the problems or challenges in terms of the state of general discourse of social, political, cultural, economic issues we have in Singapore. It was interesting how this term uncommon ground came about. I found myself in the last two weeks involved in this series of engagement talks on multiple levels, right? With some parenting, some with government, some with private sector. And I think that it's safe to say everyone felt like there was, a, there was a need for us to look at difficult conversations, right? The, the differences amongst all of us. And that was something that came up. How do we 
facilitate difficult conversations. And so obviously we got pulled in because as birthday collective, that's pretty much what we do, right? We we love to have difficult conversations and trying to find, you know, equitable ways of, of talking about it. And everyone's talking about, yeah, you know, how do we, you know, we, we must we must always emphasize on, you know, what, what commonality we have. And I think in Singapore, we do that, right? We have these common goals and values that we talk about, this universal, is you, this universality that connects you and I, although we may look very different of different genders, race, and religion. And, you know, I said, I think it's great to look at common ground. And I think we have done that. We've done a great job, you know, about that. I think there's this common, you know, I guess, ethos of who we are. But I'm actually interested in the uncommon ground because it's only in looking at where the Venn diagram doesn't overlap that we can grow that Venn diagram, that overlapping Venn diagram. Um, someone in, someone wise, and I wish I got a name, said, to see, um, we must first differentiate before we can integrate. I think it's in recognizing that you and I are different. You have a different point of view. You have a different thing from me, right? Uh, a feeling, a value that I can say, oh, okay, that's different. And rather than say, oh, that's different, I can I can say in a more exploratory manner to build this brain, heart, and hand, how can I understand a bit better? Now, I'm not even asking for acceptance because that may be a completely different conversation, right? A different point in time. But if I can first recognize and appreciate that it's different, I can possibly grow. If I'm only focusing on what you and I have in common, then if we always hold on to that, we will never grow as people. But I think, you know, we always say, yes, you know, we, and I think everyone agreed and they said, oh, you know, you're very careful on how we navigate. And I'm not saying it's going to be easy because I mean, even when I learn new things that, that go against, I guess, my own cognitive dissonance sometimes, I'm like, oh, and then it requires me to, to really put on my children's shoes and say, oh, how can, how can I learn a bit better? So I think my journey in doing the junior book has taught me a lot because I think, I mean, people say you put on your big girl shoes. And I said, no, sometimes we take off your big girl shoes or your big boy shoes. And you wear little kid shoes and say, how do we explore the world and rediscover it? And, and I think in doing so, we can ex we can really look at the uncommon ground. And to me, that's where the value is in having conversations. And I'm going to push you a little bit more because let's say you had no constraint and resources and you could shape um, a conversation however you want. What is one topic that you, that, that in this uncommon ground that you want to focus on that, that comes to your mind right away? I think, for me, the kids is always a big factor. I mean, as a mother, um, I find that children are honest. So I think that's why I like them because I know if I ask them, like in no holds barred, assuming their mom's not walking over their foot shoulder, I'm going to get a very honest answer about how they feel, what they think. And I think they can teach us a lot because they, they're, they're really discovering the world and kids don't lie. You know, sometimes they, I mean, you know, they're, they're, their sense of politeness, I guess, is not always kicked in entirely. And sometimes that honesty, however brutal, um, I think it's, it's interesting. I found my children to be deeply more inclusive than I am. I'll give a good example. We were in Japan and we were, um, we were at some car show because my husband would see some sports car, Japanese sports cars, not what we were buying, but tourist thing. And then there's this father and child came in and this girl came in with like these, I guess, metal legs, right? She had all these like a special walking brace and it was really awkward looking. And I mean, but I looked at it because it was, it was kind of was kind of in your face, and I saw my my two kids looking at her too, and you could see like they really wanted it. Was, it, it really perplexed them, right? And I so after a while, I pulled them aside because one of them looked like he was going to ask this kid a question, and I'm like, oh, is there something you want to ask? And he looked at me, and I fully expected to like go into this like, oh, you know, people have maybe she's walking disability, and we shouldn't stare at them. It's rude. And all he said was, wow, her bag's really cool. 
And I'm like, oh, I actually could see a very different side of things. Um, and something, I think as an adult, we, we have all these still good. So I think if you ask me, I would, I would love to have an unbridled conversation with kids. And I, But people, there are also not, the other groups that I would like to reach out to, I think are the ones who, um, I think even for like people with disabilities, they do have people speaking out for them. But I think the low-income people are, are always interesting for me. I, I, I don't know if they even mind being called that, but I think there was a book I read by Yo Yen who called them, I think, the unseen people. And people who like, who helps out our daily lives, you know, the cashers, the, the, the person who cleans my street. I love hearing their story and how they came. And I do, I try and do that sometimes. And I find that every time I do that, to talk to the copy damn uncle, I learn something new, whether it's how to make better Milo or like which drink, you know, I can keep longer. I, there's always something to discover if we have these small conversations with the people that we meet every day. And the... Immediate kind of follow-up questions whenever there's a question about problems and challenges would be, you know, what are the solutions, right? I think I think you alluded um, not just to some of it, but also some of the apprehensions. Like you see, you we want to have a session that's on the uncommon ground on with individuals who might be disadvantaged or marginalized, but some of the apprehensions might be, oh, that's too uncomfortable. So I guess the question in, in using some of your phrases as well, how do we learn or how do we do better in like removing some of these filters or being more forthcoming and being more um, willing to have these kinds of conversations or dialogues or conversations or engagements? I think the easy answer I would say is authenticity and curiosity. I mean, if you're genuine, I mean, when I, I mean, I have learned that the most powerful position I think that I have found, I say powerful and not in a positional sense, but most effective way is really to just be curious. And I think for a lot of people, they don't mind sharing if you're just genuinely curious. I don't, I don't, dis, I don't ask them questions because I'm trying to fix something because I, I, I don't assume that it's an easy fix, right? But I think I ask questions just to know more. And I think if I'm honest about it, whether it's about you know, gender fluidity or sexuality, for example, which may seem a bit more taboo. And sometimes I ask my friends who are, I guess, more, more woke in the space. And I'm like, okay, guys, I really don't know about this. Can I just pick your brain? And a lot of times when I do that, I find that I learn more, you know, it could be as simple as that. Or, I mean, I'm not into gardening and I'm like, my, my plants are really dying. What do I do? And rather than try and be the one that I've done this research and this tells me, do you think it's right? So I really just ask them like, guys, I don't know. And I find that that position is not something we Singaporeans are, are comfortable with. I found a very empowering position, by the way, when I say I don't know, because then someone else can teach me because I realize as I get older, I don't know a lot of things. Google makes me feel like I could know a lot of things, but actually I don't. Um, I think we do that with the birthday collective. We don't assume we know the answer. Um, even in our essay writing class, sometimes pieces come back and it's like completely different from what we, we expect, you know, and, and that's always surprising. And that's, 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 that's a surprise. So I think authenticity, just being genuine, but also being genuinely curious, yeah, without trying to find something to fix. You here has referred to a book titled The Boy, The Mole, The Fox, and The Horse. It is written and illustrated by British artist and author Charlie McCaskey. And it tells a story of vulnerability, kindness, hope, friendship, and love. Cherie suggested this book while we were exchanging book recommendations before recording this episode. Yeah, and it's interesting because right before this, uh, you were recommending me a book. It's called The Boy, The Mole, The Fox, and the... I can't... Horse. And the horse, right? And you told me that. So tell us what the, the most is in the book that you thought was, uh, was poignant. Oh, I like. It says, you know, what is the bravest thing you have ever done? And then the mole answers, ask for help. 
Yeah, that's neat because that's kind of what you described, which is um, a certain degree of humility in saying what we don't know and then, you know, um, being able to identify sources where you might get information and knowledge. And then that's kind of like a refreshing way of looking at that. So I guess my kind of follow-up to that would be where does the birthday book come in, or birthday collective come in, sorry, in terms of creating this space and holding this space, where does the collective come in? There is, I think for us, I would say that no conversation um, is out of bounds for us. We do try and not be, to, to go, do a very political piece because that, that entirely overshadows the, the purpose of why we do it. The reason why we bit more tentative about it. But I think we are really open to all kinds of conversation where people are willing to come in with a that sense of, genu- that, of genuineness and learning, but also in just genuine sharing. Um, we know that some people, when they share, they have an agenda about it. Like there's a greater agenda. Sometimes we are more privy to it. Sometimes it's not so bad. But I think for a lot of times we look for people who are just genuine in sharing who they are, what they know. And the question we always ask them is, what is the story you can tell that no one else can, right? What is that personal thing about you that makes your story important? And I think that is that is critical because writing a generic, oh, you know, inspirational, we can have better I don't know, schooling. Anyone can technically write that if you're a, you know, a student that can do research, right? But in your perspective, in your experience, that's precious to us, that, that personal journey. And I think that kernel of who you are, that's your part in the conversation that only you can have. And that's why your voice matters, because there's a, there's a kernel of, of Jin Yao or of Shri or whoever it is that, that is unique. And so I think we do that because we give people opportunity. We constantly try and look. Um, I would say that we are still missing a huge swath of, of these voices, but I think our journey is very, very young in the journey and we, we've put it out there that we're always looking. And every year we find like a special new person that opens up a whole new sector to us, like this Minecraft thing or the ITE students, right? I mean, they're, they're very different. They're not part of the original crowd we started with. And so I think, you know, we, we have some progress and I hope that when other groups see this, they also feel like they could be they could be part of us. So hopefully it's not just us reaching out, but them also reaching in and saying, hey, can you find a form factor for us to have this conversation um, and help us be heard? And I think that's, for me, that's a, that's a meaningful space to be. And since you're reaching kind of towards the end, I wanted to end with a small nod to your 2018 contribution to the book and that year. And it was titled, What a River Crossing Taught Me About Working With People. You know, you recounted this story while you and your team were on assignment in Myanmar of how a young boy of 10 helped guide your team and driver directly across the river because a bridge had collapsed. Now, before I asked my question, I was wondering if I could invite you to read us your concluding paragraphs. So um, the book, actually, the piece in the book, so the title you read is the one that came out in today. Um, the piece in the book was called You Cannot Map the Riverbed. And interesting story, because before I tell you, before I read it, I must tell you how this piece came to be. I was asked, I was invited to write. And I wrote this like completely like other piece, right? Not me and my piece. And then the editor, who's a good friend of mine, he, he writes me and he goes, okay, great. This is great. But this is not the story that only you can tell. So please rewrite this. And just so you know, the deadline's tomorrow. And I'm like, oh my God, deadline tomorrow. And so I sat down and I, I birthed the story um, based on, I, I, I go to Myanmar quite a lot since 96. I birthed the story in under, in under an hour and he wrote back. So I mailed it off and he came back. He says, oh, I'm going to take it wholesale to make one, one small like grammatical correction. And the piece that you see is pretty much was, was written. And that story, I think, has really stuck with me because in all my travels in Myanmar, I've seen many strange things, but driving through a river was kind of far out. And so, yeah, it, it's true. The river collapsed. And we had to drive through it. So I tell this story. And so I'm going to read you the last paragraph, the last paragraph now. It says, I tell them the story and the wise words of our driver, who 20 years on is still, is still a treasured friend of mine. You cannot map the riverbed. It changes all the time. 
you need to find someone who knows the river well, someone who knows what the river is like and how to cross it. The boy and his friends play in the river almost every day, and they swim back and forth all the time. Their feet know how to walk the riverbed. And I know this, you know, I, I imagine this philosophy continues to inform your life and, and work, but in reading and listening to you read it as well, especially in the current political, geopolitical context, it's, I think there's some resonance too, but maybe at a more personal level, how has that philosophy you wrote about um, continued to inform your work and life? I mean, I think one of the big things I took away from that was the boy that helped us across the river was probably 10 years old, right? Um, he wasn't very educated. You know, he didn't go to school, but he he knew the riverbed. And at that time when we needed to cross it, he was probably the best, one of the best placed people to do it because he knew where the potholes were. He knew how, how you know, where the dips were and how our van, our lorry could, could drive through. And it was really scary because you're, you're pretty much just trusting the driver who was putting his trust in his 10-year-old child. And all of us were sitting at the back of the lorry. And it was a lot of faith in someone else's, I guess, knowledge. But it was a knowledge that he had because he he walked this riverbed. He knew it better than anyone else. We were above the water, we can't see below. And I think for me, it, it really is a philosophy because I think everyone, I mean, there's a word I love called sonder. It's an urban word, right? That says everyone's walking a path that you don't know about. And I think everyone's path has that value, right? That riverbed that as you walk through or walk with them or you want to discover, they are your best guides. So why try and figure out how to fix their lives without having them part of the conversation? Because they are the ones who are walking their riverbed. And it's changing all the time. You know, something that a study that was done 10 years ago may, may show certain, certain outcomes that you may want to apply today. But it may not be great um, for a person today because it's different. So I think, you know, the everyday person matters, you know, even if they don't think their voice matters. We should, we should know that it matters and we must. It is our duty, I feel, to put them at the table. The children, for example, matter. They don't have a voice, but they do, I mean, given the context of things. And I think for me, it's the fight for people to have a voice at the table, even if it's only for a while. And those that do not, then it's my burden, I think, my duty and my, I guess, not even a burden, I think it's my gift that they have, they can entrust, that I help them find that voice or that space. Um, I think it's it's um, it's a duty we, we feel and we take seriously at the Birthday Collective of helping people tell their story as honestly and getting that story out to as many people as we can. And as someone who is self-proclaimed part of the essay writing crowd, I think it's a, and someone who thinks about, you know, being a more effective intermediary, I think it's, it's great that it's moving away from just the book itself. And I'm, I'm, when I heard about the different interviews and the different initiatives, I think that was a, a, a kind of like really great move as well. And thank you, Sherry, very much for sharing with us the experience and, and sharing with us very personal anecdotes from your life as well. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. 